Namaste. I am Manoshi Sina, your host for the evening. And uh, I welcome you all to this event organized by Indica Delhi. I have authored seven books, including two books on Krishna. And I am also the editor of a business magazine. I am also the founder editor of MyIndiaMyGlory.com, an e-magazine that brings to the readers about India from the present and the past with a special focus on history and heritage. My latest book, Saffron Swords, being published by Garuda Prakashan, will be released this September. This book, which is the first of a series on unsung warriors of India, contains 52 tales of valor of warriors who have given a stiff resistance against foreign invasion, first against Islamic invasion and rule, and later British supremacy. Indica is a network of Indic Academy, a non-profit seeking to bring about a cultural, spiritual, and intellectual renaissance based on Indic civilizational thought. Indic Academy enables public intellectuals to discover their potential, transform them as thought leaders, and nurture them to become social entrepreneurs. Indic Academy also incubates, invests, and assists social enterprises delivering a product, service, or an experience that is based on Indic thought. These aims are achieved through scholarships and grants, courses and programs, networks and platforms and affiliates. Indic Academy provides scholarships to students and seeks to establish relationships with the existing universities and institutions. Currently, they have an MOU with the Kanchi Mat, Sanji University, and Chinmaya Vishwavidyapit. They provide fellowship, research and travel grants to scholars and public intellectuals, publishing grants to digital platforms, and travel grants to scholars and grants for conducting events and projects and entrepreneurial grants for nurturing entrepreneurship such as Pondi Literature Festival, Bharat Sakti and the recently organized Indic Teen Fest. They conduct online and offline courses and programs including workshops, seminars, conferences and retreats. As regards networks and platforms, they enable public intellectuals to connect, cooperate and collaborate with one another by nurturing various networks such as Indica Network, Indic Activists Network, Indic Author Network, and Indic Economic Network. They are currently incubating platforms such as Indic Today, Indic Book Club, Indic Knowledge Systems, Creative India, Advaita Academy, and Indic Festivals. Under their affiliate program, they act as financial or thought partners with the other social enterprises. Some examples are Garuda Prakashan and Ved Bapi Foundation. Now that you know something about me and about uh, Indic Academy, let me introduce you to the star of today's event, Kavita Kaneji. A round of applause for her. She is the author of five best-selling novels, Karna's Wife, Menaka's Choice, Sita's Sister, Lanka's Princess, and her latest, The Fisher Queen's Dynasty. I would like to interrupt uh, myself here, thanks to my curiosity. Kavita ji, 
all the titles of all your five best-selling novels have an apostrophe in that. Any secret behind this? Uh, first and foremost, Namaste and hello to everyone and a very good evening. Uh, yes, of course, I think the S, apostrophe S became sort of a brand image also. Uh, and I think uh, both me and the publishers, everyone started getting a little superstitious about it. So, and I think uh, when I started writing the book, it was like either I thought of the title first or later. And I realized writing a book was easy, but actually finding the title was very difficult. Because every time thinking of an apostrophe S, yes, uh, not, not only does it sound very uh, cliché, it sounds very childish also. So it was like, okay, someone something, someone something. So I said, okay, I think that sense of possessiveness is there. But uh, yeah, I think if, it, if I'm superstitious, I think it's okay. Keeping my fingers crossed is done well. Yeah, Karna Sangini is a TV adaptation of her book, Karna's Wife. This TV serial will soon, soon be featured in Star Plus. A big round of applause for Kavita Kavita Kaneji is a revolutionary force in Indian writing, especially on the epics, Puranic history, and uh, mythology. Uh, she was born in Mumbai and grew up in other cities like Patna, Delhi, and Pune. She is an alumina of Ferguson College, Pune, and she has done her post-graduation in English literature and uh, mass communication from the University of Pune. She is a former journalist, having worked for 20 years for various media platforms, including the Times of India and Daily News and Analysis. After the success of her debut novel, Karna's Wife, she became a fledged author. Her latest book, The Fisher Queen's Dynasty, is, uh, which is published by Westland Publications, is a book on Rani Saktavati, the great-grandmother of the Kauravas and the Pandavas. This book is truly a fantastic read. <laughs> we decided to, to do away with the typical lecture format and chose to have a conversation with uh, Kavita Ji on a topic which is very close to the themes of our novels. And today's topic is women and politics in the epics. During the first half of this session, we shall be speaking about, uh, I and uh, Kavita Ji will converse on women characters from the epics, women who played an instrumental or little role in administration and political affairs and in shaping the lifeline of two great dynasties from the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Uh, during the course of our conversation, we shall also try to know more about Kavita Kaneji and her books. The second round will be an, we shall take questions uh, from the audience in the second round. So I would like to ask to keep the questions ready by then. <laughs> Before we proceed with the conversation on the chosen topic of today, I would like to ask Kavita Ji one question. Like all of the, the themes of all of your novels are based on Puranic history, mythology, and uh, epics. So what is the inspiration behind that? Inspiration? Like if you're asking me, did I read a lot of mythology books uh, when I was an adult? No. 
I was, uh, but I think like everyone else, I was brought up on Amar Chitra Qatar, which actually, if you real, if now I realize in retrospect, is, uh, it gave you at least a rough, concise, succinct introduction to what was, whether it's mythology or history. Uh, because I think when I studies, we tend to know more about uh, European history and uh, English history than our, our very own. And I think it, uh, uh, like I think I knew more about Greek literature uh, than Indian literature, uh, Indian um, Greek mythology more the, uh, than Indian mythology. So that I think that uh, whole balance of Amar Chitrakata was very good. And uh, I think they were, for us now they call them graphic novels. But I think that whole part of it that they were illustrated. And uh, of course that is becomes a problem while writing because you still have that image of Ramachitra Katha Karna or Ramachitra Katha Ram and then you try to uh, have a graphic image of that uh, while writing. Uh, but uh, mythology, I think as a subject I was interested in while doing literature. Mm-hmm. So while doing literature I realized the importance of mythology mainly because most of the writers, they use that as a literary tool. So whether it's Milton, I mean if you actually see. So I think... Uh, when I had to write, I had never done creative writing before. I mean, it was only journalistic writing and which is completely, completely, as you say, non-fiction with data and details. Uh, mythology, I think, was, I don't know, it was not a very conscious effort. It was, I just wrote blindly about a character whom I really liked. So my first, actually, I was not going to write on Karna, I was going to write on Urbila. And I realized there was nothing much about her. And I just didn't have the courage to write further on and then I decided to write Karna's wife and I think the success of Karna's wife actually gave me the courage to write uh, Sita's sister and I think I think this courage multiplied and I think that so did the books so I think that's how mythology and uh, mythology and if you actually see mythology is a perfect format for me personally was because I remember when writing Karna's wife uh, I was wondering whether to contemporarize it you know contemporarize Mahabharata per se because to make it more relatable and then I realized you don't need to make it relatable because is the, it, it, it does have a there is a certain universality about it uh, we are talking about the same emotions, the same experiences the same enigmas, the same dilemmas and I said all I had to do was try to put it in a uh, put it in a such a way that it is readable and so that's how the whole retelling happens, the reimagining happens, the uh, revisiting happens of uh, mythology and that's how Karna's wife came about and uh, I realized this is, uh, mythology was the perfect uh, medium to do so because it's a canvas to sort of color contemporary thoughts and views. Mm-hmm. Wonderful to know that. My first question related related to the topic is from the Ramayana. It is on Manthara. Mm-hmm. Manthara raised up the motherless Kaikeyi. Mm-hmm. And after Kaikeyi was married to Dasaratha, Manthara accompanied her and she started living in Ayodhya. So Manthara was uh, instrumental in convincing Kaikeyi that uh, the throne of Ayodhya belonged to her son Bharata. Mm. So Kaikeyi in turn convinced Dasaratha and uh, she convinced him to send Rama on exile so that uh, her son Bharata would be the king of Ayodhya in his absence. So my question is how would you project Mantara 
considering her role in Ayodhya politics, though it was indirect, her role was indirect. Oh, well, I think if you talk about characters who sort of propel the plot, I think without Mantra, the story wouldn't have moved forward at all. Yes. I mean, till then, everything was very hunky-dory, everything was sweet, everyone was happy, <laughs> and it was just one, one germ of a poisonous thought and how it expands, how it goes into your stream, into your mind, into your heart and it completely takes over a person. And I think Mantra, now of course the motives are different, whether she was a political person or she did it for her own selfish motive. But yes, she was definitely more politically minded. She was, and her status completely dependent on the status of Kaikei. So if Kaikei's position is weakened, her position is weakened. So it was it came a lot from a, a self-interest, self-preservation and uh, yes, and I think there is a history where she re really never liked the three boys, uh, the four boys. So there was no case of affection of, there is no case of affair, the affection, except for of course Bharat and Chaturgan, uh, Bharat basically. She was very possessive about Bharat. And uh, I think uh, she, Mantra, not only is a political uh, uh, persona, I think she's also a very psychological persona in the sense how she weaves into the mind of every person and she knows the weakness, she knows the weakness of each and every person in that family. And one thing she definitely does know that she wields enormous power on Kaikai herself, whether it's emotional, whether it's uh, because I think Kaikai used to sort of uh, not only brainstorm, you know, whatever her pensive moods, whatever her weak moments, she used to discuss it with uh, Mantra. Mantra was like her mother. I mean, it is, uh, I mean, I definitely would not say she teased, uh, treated her like uh, anyone. So I think as uh, without Mantra, you cannot think of Ramayana. whatever happened. The, I mean, especially the first half. I mean, I think actually if you see uh, Mantra, then Kai Kai and then later Zurpadaka, these are the three women who completely dominate uh, the politics of uh, the entire uh, Ramayana narrative. If uh, Mantra and Kaikeya are there in the first half, uh, without Surupanaka, I don't think the second part of Ramayana would have uh, progressed at all because Ram and Ravan would not ever have met. So I think there is definitely a very, very distinctive role each one of them has, uh, which not only involves the politics but also as an instigator, you know, it, they, they propel the plot, they, they are the one, they are trigger points where actually the entire course of events change. Mm -hmm. uh, they are actually huge turns and where the narrative actually flows. Mm -hmm. So, they are small characters in size, I mean, if you say space has been very small, but the uh, influence is enormous, mm -hmm. completely enormous. Yeah, wonderful analysis. Your book, Sita's Sister, is... Uh, no, no, it's okay. Your book, Sita's Sister, is about Urmila, the wife of Lakshmana and the sister of Sita. Mm -hmm. Unlike Sita, who accompanied Rama to the forests on exile, Urmila had to step back in Ayodhya. Mm -hmm. She is a lesser-known char character in the context of the Ramayana, and people hardly speak about her. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, we wish to know, please enlighten us about your uh, experience in writing Sita's sister. I, yeah, first I have to admit that she was one of my, she was my favorite character. I think that's why she inspired uh, 
Me too, right? Because I think we talk about... Uh, she is the most overlooked character in the epic. She is one of the most neglected ones. And uh, I just realized that she's always in the shadow. So if sort of the spotlight is on her and she's in the limelight, how the plot changes. The plot doesn't change, actually the narrative changes. Where the perspective, because of the change perspective, she's sort of given a voice and she's asking questions. And she's not just asking questions, she's asking questions which she wants answers. And uh, that's how I sort of molded uh, Urmila because there was nothing about her. It was just about a three-line mention. And she was entirely based on uh, she as Sita's sister, Urmila as Lakshman's wife, and most importantly, she as Janak's daughter. Uh, in Valmiki's uh, Ramayana, Urmila is... She sleeps for 14 years and I think I use that as a metaphor in my book where the sleep is also her spiritual awakening where we know about life in the forest but we really don't know what happens in the palace and that those 14 years what did the three women, the six women do, there were three queens and these three girls and I think Urmila there again becomes uh, uh, a pivotal figure in my book, of course. Uh, I wouldn't. I mean, it, I mean, this is all an imagined, uh, reimagined version, and uh, it is her own private exile uh, of 14 years, and how she uh, she sort of grows from a girl, from a bride. She also was a bride when uh, Lakshman leaves her, and her, her 14 years from the growth of a girl to a woman. Uh, so that is her journey, and. Uh, and I think it was well received because uh, the essence was uh, the four sisters as contrast also. They were similar but each of them faced the same situation and each of them reacted in a different way. So it was a, a story of sisterhood. It was a, a story of camaraderie. It was a sister a story of uh, womenhood. The whole, there are six women in the house. And uh, I remember someone say, passing, oh, ye to serial jaise hai. Until then, until that uh, reader had not passed that comment, I did not realize it as such. And I said, yes, and that it was a relation between uh, sisters. It was a relation, the change relationship between sisters-in-law, sisters who had become sisters-in-law. And it was, the, there was a mother-in-law. And uh, it was a completely women's story. But which would not have happened without the man. In the sense where... Uh, Lakshman doesn't become, uh, remain a weak figure. In fact, I think it was more difficult uh, fleshing out uh, Lakshman because uh, he, there is a certain uh, image about him where his, his identity sort of completely sublimated where uh, he's either uh, Ram's brother, you see him as Ram's brother or the devoted brother-in-law. You never see him as a husband or even a son. Uh, so... Uh, here, fleshing out Lakshman was the, the very, very difficult. Urmila was relatively easy because there is nothing about her. So, but thankfully, I think she was uh, welcomed and accepted and really, really loved. So. My next question on the topic is again on Kaikai. Hmm? It's on Kaikai. Mm-hmm. Uh, like... Uh, even after her marriage with Dasaratha, mm-hmm. she maintained strong maternal, uh, she maintained strong relations with her maternal family. Uh, yes. And her brother Yudhajit used to visit uh, her often. 
and Yudhajit also took uh, Bharata and Kaikai steps on Satrugna on vacation to the Kaikaya kingdom. And uh, like Kaikai was uh, also Dasarath's charioteer in his military campaign against uh, Sambarasura. In the battlefield, uh, Dasarath's chariot will broke and uh, Sambarasura's arrow hit Dasarath's armor and lodged in his chest. At that juncture, it was uh, Kaikai's queen presence of mind, wit and bravery that saved Dasarath's life. And later, she, she quickly repaired the wheel and uh, took the chariot out of the battlefield. Later, she nursed uh, Dasarath back to good health. Mm. So in return, Dasarath gave her two boons, mm -hmm. and which uh, Kaikai chose to ask in an opportune time. And when the opportune time came, Kaikai asked for the boons to claim the throne of uh, Ayodhya for her son Bharata and uh, sending Rama on exile. So, like, uh, how is Kaikai's role in Ayodhya politics, as you have already also, uh, told in our earlier conversation? But again, like, how is Kaikai's role in Ayodhya politics important? And also, your views about uh, women maintaining strong relations with their uh, maternal family after marriage. <laughs> Uh, which is uh, uh, drawing example from KK. Again, the timeline of which uh, dates back to, say, 7,000 years. I think, uh, except for that blemish in her life, I mean, which she suffered all her life, I think KK is an absolutely admirable woman. If you see her, she was the youngest sister of seven brothers. She could have well been the proverbial pampered princess. But if you see her character, she is young, she is feisty, she is brave. She's a warrior. She knows how to uh, have, be in the be on the battlefield. So in in every way, she's amazing, and I think that is exactly why she Dasharat wants to marry her. And I think her entire identity uh, is very. I find a parallel between her and Satyavati here, where both the fathers, because Kaikeyi was very young compared to Dasharat, the father wanted her son to be the heir. Because the same way Satyavati's father did in uh, the Mahabharata. And how her destiny changes because she herself forgets about that uh, uh, certain condition about which her father had placed on her husband, uh, Dasharath himself forgets it. And it was Mantra who reminds her and how everything changes. So, but before that, now there is a very two parts of Kaikai, actually you see the phases. Uh, the first phase is she is young, charming, feisty, daring woman who marries a king uh, much older to her. She enters uh, the palace of Ayodhya where she is the, now there is a question of whether she is the second or the third queen. Definitely she is the next queen after Kaushalya. And uh, there must have been some sort of a Definitely Kaushala would not have welcomed with open arms. I mean, there must have been certain element of being, sharing the wife, I mean, the sharing space and uh, the husband. Uh, so the equation between, again, Kaushala and Kaikai, which may have percolated into the that whole uh, uh, dilemma of Ram and Bharat, because uh, that is exactly what uh, Mantra uses against uh, uh, Kaikai at one point of time. So Kaikai, you see uh, that whole thing of a confident woman who is still insecure 
she becomes because she is she becomes she is the favorite queen of the king uh, she loves all the four sons but when it uh, when it is mantra who starts supposedly poisoning her mind uh, that whole the entire transformation of her from what she was to what she became and then the boon she demands in there she becomes i mean it is such a it is such a drastic difference from what she was so in fact when i was doing uh, write uh, writing on well uh, sita sister i came upon a lot of this thread uh, there were a lot of folk stories and uh, where there are different versions why kaiki behaved as she did because it you never showed like she was the stepmother as such where she did she, not yeah, eat ram yeah like she yeah, loved ram i have read she ram, loved ram yeah the whole ram thing. used to force to go to her room and like to touch her feet yes exactly Before i mean she was he, i mean there was a very strong genuine affection between uh, uh, ram and uh, kaike mm-hmm. and how why does why just because of a few words from mantra why does she change i mean it seems uh, almost hurried in its explanation so i mean there, there are a lot of interesting thread one thread is that it seems she was she knew about uh, what was going to happen and she was supposed to be a vehicle for ram to take his mission and there are different stories about the secret of uh, he could overhear a uh, conversation of animals and uh, birds and it seems she heard the birds talking uh, discussing uh, about uh, ram's destiny uh, that he is supposed to protect the forest of dandu and how and kaikai being uh, the step the mother i would say and she knew that dashrath would never send him send ram away so she had sort of make a master plan and you know and that is the reason why he was sent away so a lot of these interesting stories about it which sort of try to not only illustrate or to justify her action but the fact remains that whatever she did whether she did it out of uh, altruistic uh, motives or whether it was for selfish motive she is doomed for it forever i mean in her lifetime it's like her own son da never accepts she turns her own son against her she loses her husband she loses the respect and love which she had in the family in the city in the kingdom and she was the most hated not only during her era i mean even now kaike you never name a daughter called kaike so she is one of the most despised character i mean yet she had to live with i mean that is the biggest tragedy so i mean if yes she is the most political she is actually the not the most political person because she was very much in love with her but she was very much she loved the children and one insecure in thought when it expands into it, it not only an, it is not only a doubt and a suspicion it becomes an uncertainty which sort of threatens her <coughs> her very existence like the fear that kaushalya would become the chief queen and then she will be the queen mother and that entire you know the rigmarole of thoughts and the cauldron of uh, what is it it was like she i think she was like a drowning woman herself and i think uh, this entire change of personality is uh, i think it's it's very not only really, uh, it's pitiful you know that whole thing what she is reduced to and what she does to ram and i mean that's a different uh, story all together and i think the most touching scene is when rams comes back from ayodhya and the conversation the, between kaike and ram i think it shows 
a certain level the goodness it shows the goodness and wisdom and the maturity those 14 years i've given both of them so yeah. i think i i would have loved to write a book on her but i think after writing a novella story <laughs> sita sister i don't think she is just too she is very very layered i mean she is one of the most complicated characters i think i think we have sort of uh, stereotyped into being black but i think her her grace grey is almost blanche to a white you know if you actually see if you really want to see uh, see her as a woman as a wife as a mother mm-hmm. i think it's 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 a very changing beautiful relationship she has yeah again which are of course very tragic about that uh, women after marriage maintaining strong relations with their mother oh about the oh <laughs> yes i would love her. i love her for that <laughs> because uh, i think yes because uh, it is i think uh, i don't know how men realize it how many men realize it but it is absolutely tearing to be torn from your family from and then going into another family in marriage i mean i think that particular time i mean wedding is a very happy time but it is a very bitter sweet experience so that whole thing about she still clinging on to uh, it shows a certain uh, it not uh, definitely not, not a matriarchal society but it shows a certain power she wielded you know she had that okay i can my brothers can come any time my sons can go any time so she was almost more than an equal where she said no i mean they have as much as right i mean she that kekay was as much as a home as ayodhya was you know i think that was uh, it was not arrogance it was i think it was I think that was a power of popularity with Dashrath, which allowed her to do that. And I think uh, personally, I think I love it. I mean, why not? I mean, we have the best of both worlds. Yeah. Wonderful analysis and explanation. Just, just have. One. No, no, no. It's okay. I keep on. Your book, Lanka's Princess, on uh, Supanaka is okay. intriguing. So. how why you chose to write wrote, write on sarpanaka and how challenging it was to write about her because when we speak about sarpanaka we know her yeah. as the sister of ravana and that lakshmana cut her nose and uh, writing a whole book on her is yes. uh, not that easy i feel it was almost i thought it would be suicide <laughs> but fortunately uh, no i think the motive was very i had no intention of uh, painting a black character white i mean i was really not interested in that at all or you know the thing of making a sinner into a saint i was more interested in the sto- her story i mean because as i said before uh, she is the reason why the second half of ramayan happened if draupadi uh, is the reason for war in the mahabharata i think it is uh, subhanaka who is the reason for war between ram and ravan and who is this person i mean she comes and she goes and then you never hear of her you don't know who she was before you don't know what happens to her later and uh, but she, uh, her that particular episode is the most violent one if you actually see uh, there is a lot of drama when she comes you know that uh, uh, she sees ram and lakshman that entire episode between ram and lakshman uh, the chopping off of the nose which is one of the most violent episodes in the epic more violent actually than the war itself uh and it of course in modern uh, narrative is getting uh, misinterpreted a lot but i think here i really make it clear that uh 
don't think I'll go with Chopra because, Chopra because of her, that she was very upfront about her sexuality. I think it was because she was going to attack a defenseless woman. Because she was angry with Ram and Lakshman. And like, if she was a warrior, yeah. Ram, she could, she was, she was, she was, she could have used her, the directed anger towards these two men. Instead, she turned towards the defenseless Sita and she was going to attack her. And that's why Lakshman attacked. I mean, this is how the actually the chronology goes. And that is the reason for her behavior. And when that whole thing of the humiliation of her nose getting chopped off, and then she goes to her brother. Now, I think uh, it becomes more and more controversial, and I think uh, uh, I really wanted to know, I wanted to bring this, the whole episode out, because there's too much of, uh, there's, a, uh, there's, there's controversy, there is uh, a lot of questions asked about these, uh, her entire existence. And I feel that she was, she being a sister, she was the only sister of three very powerful brothers. Uh, she was the daughter of a Rishi, of the daughter, like Rama, she was the daughter of an Asur princess. Who was she? So I think I, while doing the book, I really had to go back. And then I came upon a thread where I read that she actually used Rama and Lakshman to take revenge on Ravan. Now this particular thread I think intrigued me and I said, okay, this, now it completely changes the story. Mm-hmm. So I think I used that as my sort of a lifeline mm-hmm. for the book. And, uh, but then I had to, the entire narrative goes back. Like we know whatever said and done, uh, Ram loved, uh, Ravan loved uh, his sister. And there was genuine affection between brother and sister. So what was it that would have made Surpanaka hate Ravan so much that she would like to she would like to have, see his death. I mean, actually, the war starts before her. So the whole drama, I think, uh, I took it at another. Uh, I wanted to see the other side all of it. The, all these are portrayed in your book. Uh, yes, because uh, no, no, because see, this whole thing has almost become cliched. Surpanaka, you will find she will cackling away. You know that whole. It's almost Surpanaka is almost a caricature. You don't feel. She's not even a pitiful character. You don't feel sorry for her. She is like a joker, you know. Especially uh, in the collective imagination, and it was like, okay, she has, she is the she she must be someone for Ravan to hear her, listen to her wails, and listen to her and agree. And how if you if you read the, the entire conversation between Surpanaka and Ravan, and how she actually sort of puts it in his mind to abduct Sita. I mean, that is very, very insidiously done. So she must have been an extremely clever woman. So I think that is what actually made me write about her. And uh, the book was not about she being a victim or she being a vamp at all. It was she telling her story, her point of view, how she sees that part of the Ramayana, how uh, the events which unfolds through her eyes. Like she as a, as a child, as a young woman who marries, who has a son, she as a mother, and she also, also most importantly, I mean, she was Lanka's princess. We never see her as that. And uh, what was, I mean, what happened to her after that particular incident? If Ravan listened to her, there was an entire war because of her. Then what? So no one knows. So it was, uh, the whole thing was about a woman uh, 
I would not say she's not a typical. I would not uh, like she if she is the most despised woman in the uh, Ramayana. I would definitely not. Uh, I try to show her in a more uh, humanized way, like in the sense humanize her more than demonize her, and show her as a simple woman who's telling a who who wants to tell her story and uh, who goes through. What makes I don't I personally don't believe a person is born bad. So what made her bad? If she was bad, what made her bad? Mm -hmm. That was the, I mean, the shortest thing I could say. Yeah. No, no, I. Yeah. My next uh, question on the topic is on Satyavati. Mm -hmm. She uh, she was also called Matsyabandha. So she was the daughter of a fisherman. She rose in uh, position and power to become the queen of Hastinapur. So it was because of Satyavati that uh, Santanu's clan could be saved from perishing. Mm -hmm. And otherwise the Mahabharata would not have happened. And, uh, and upon her request, Beth Vyasa fathered the, the children of the widowed queens of Vijitravarya mm. uh, according to the prevalent system of Niyoga. Yeah. And uh, after the death of Shantanu, Satyavati played an active role in the administration and in decision making. So, so how, how did Satyavati influence the politics of our times, according to you? Satyavati, I think, she was the most political person in the Mahabharata. If you see, if you think uh, Mahabharata and the Mahabharata, political drama, I mean, at that level, I'm not talking about the uh, metaphysical or the philosophical content of it, but if you see it as a political drama, she is the one who starts it. Because, again, before her, things are very nice in, in that part, the first half of the Mahabharata. Uh, Devrath had just come back, you know, after Shantanu has his son back, and he is almost going to, he is the crown prince, he is almost going to be crown king. And he would have married, if whatever, uh, later on. And uh, he meets, he comes across this beautiful uh, young girl called Satyavati, and everything changes. Everything changes. And uh, if you see uh, Satyavati, she is political in the sense she uses, she has the presence of mind to use a bad situation and make the best of it. That episode with uh, Parashar, I mean, she was Matsyabandha, it sounds very exotic, but Matsyabandha actually means the smell of the fish. It is, it is very symbolic. It is the smell, it is a rotting smell. It sort of symbolizes the rotting life she was having. And the first thing she asked from Parashar is change the smell. She wants that smell to go and she becomes Yogananda. So, this, the thing that then she becomes fragrant, that whole thing of. So, that is extremely analogical. The, this thing is being that that is the first transformation she had and I think uh, Satyavati is interesting again with her names if you actually see the names she has uh, she is born as Kali like everyone calls her Kali because for dark skin uh, then she is called Matsyananda and Satyavati she gets that name Satyavati much later in life with slowly with her when she slowly accepts by society and by uh, she, when she becomes the queen of Hastinapur, it is actually then she becomes a Satyavati. Because till then, if you see her journey, is 
is as Mastaganda. The moment she marries Shantanu, uh, uh, she is known as uh, Satyavati, and that is exactly what she is. Because she, uh, I mean, if you see her, she breaks rules from in every way, right from the right from her birth. If you see, uh, I try to demythify her birth by she is the legitimate daughter of King Chidi, and uh, she knows that her father had not accepted her and accepted she was she has a twin brother and the twin brother has been accepted as an heir but not she and she has been abandoned and she has been taken by Dasharat who is a fisherman and she's she's been brought up as a fisherman and her entire destiny changes when A she meets Parashar and B when she meets Shantanu so these two men how they change her life and how she changes theirs in the sense that she gets a vyas from Parashar and from Shantanu she gets to heirs. Now, this is actually her dynasty. These are the three two bloodlines which are destined to meet because of Satyavati. And uh, when you are talking about the Leo, I mean, she, she is one person who never allowed, I don't think she ever allowed any emotional space, you know, any emotional weakness in her. However, I mean, she, I think she, she got the worst of tragedies. Yeah, she has a husband, she married a husband much older to her who dies, she is a lot of young sons, when they are at a, when they are supposed to be heirs, they die, I mean, for what, uh, for different reasons. And then again she's back, she's actually, it's like a slap on her face where she's asking, okay, for what, you fought for something and you don't have anything. All this time you're fighting for your heirs, the entire thing she, uh, uh, where uh, she sort of deprived Bishma of his rights, of his royal rights, and was because of this whole for her own uh, preservation, for the preservation of her two sons, and her two sons are no longer there. But she, that is that entire concept. The way she thinks of Vyas, bringing in Vyas into the uh, uh, into the narrative, is beautiful because it is her son, it is Vyas's son. It, uh, the grandchildren are really Satyavati, so the entire dynasty is Satyavati's dynasty, if you see. So, you call it the Kuru dynasty, but I think it, that's, that's why I kept the title as the Vishnu dynasty, because it is, a, it is her blood. And eventually, it's very ironical, at the end of it, we are talking about the Matsya kingdom, uh, Abhivanya's wife, uh, Uttara, she came from there. So, it, always come, it almost comes back as a full circle. You know, it's like, it starts off with Satyavati and it ends up with uh, Uttara, who is also from the Matsya kingdom, who was from her twin brother's side. So, the, it is very, it, it's, it's a very ironical thing that what you fight for and what you get. But I think that is what distinguishes uh, Satyavati from Abhishma is that I think both of them is, uh, uh, symbolize two different ways of looking at life. I think if Abhishma uh, represent destiny. I think Satyavati represents free will, the entire uh, struggle of determination where she will not give up. In, in the worst of circumstances, she refuses to give up. I think the only reason she actually retreats to the forest is because when Vyas tells her that he shows her the end. And that is, I think that, that is the time she actually dies, when her heart breaks, that what all she did and what all she strived for 
and she sees it's going to end in the war. Like where her own uh, grand uh, grandchildren are going to uh, end in uh, uh, in bloody violence uh, and destruction. So I think uh, Satyavati, if you see that entire journey, she never, never, ever buckles. She never regrets. I mean, I think the only regret, whatever she had, must have been where I think her own. In uh, making uh, from Devraj, she was the reason why from Devraj she becomes a Bhishma. Uh, but otherwise, she has no regrets. I mean, whatever she does, she does it relentlessly with full focus, and uh, she is very, very, very prepared to prepare the suffer the consequences. And she doesn't realize that the consequences are going to be borne by the other people also, not only other people around her. For generations later, years later, which will end up in when end in the war, which eventually Vyas has to spell it out for. So I think uh, another strong woman, another extremely political person. Uh, she knows what she wants. Uh, again, I did not want to show her as a vamp or a victim. I think this is one of my most darkest novels. But uh, she might not be even likable. But I did not want. How to be like her? Well, I want to again. I wanted to tell a story of a woman, of a young girl who has been deprived of her rights right from the beginning, right from her birth. Her father is an illegitimate child uh, who is brought up in uh, and who rises in station. She becomes the queen, and in the end, power also corrupts her. So there is no gentler again in power when you say uh, uh, when, when when she has what she resents about her father. She actually does the same thing uh, when she has the chance. So, power in the end is as bewitching as if it can bewitch a man, it can bewitch a woman also. So, I think I think it is a great. Uh, it's very egalitarian. So, there uh, there definitely you cannot say a woman is a better politician or man is a better politician. I would not say. That. I think it all. It's it's the spirit. It's. Uh, Politics, I think that's what I mean. Uh, Satyavati means politics. You cannot think. I mean, she is, you can see no other character, not even the man who is as uh, who is as clear-sighted. She knows what she wants and she will have it. You know, it's like, and imagine her, she is not a part of the royal family. She is not a part of the royal family. So she is not brought up in that. Uh, in, it is a, a case of in diversity how you succeed. How you how you sort of overcome your diversity, your difficulties, and then you succeed. I think she's a classic case of that. Please do read her book, The Fisher Queen's Dynasty. It's all about uh, Satyavati in detail. My last question on the topic is on Draupadi. She was also known as Yajna Shini because yeah. she was born she came from, from a Yajna, yeah. the sacrificial fire. Uh, though she was also called Panchale because she was the princess of Panchal, <laughs> she was mockingly called by this name by Duryodhan, <laughs> connoting her as the wife of five husbands. So many critics consider Draupadi as the root cause of the Mahabharata war <laughs> because uh, when Duryodhan visited her palace, the Maya Sabha, and he fell in the waters, she insulted him by saying, Andheka Peta Andha. So, going by the Devar Bhavi pranks and jokes, addressing him as Andha was justified. Yeah, I but think that was the immediate cause of it. 
बट आई थिंक शी एज अ पोलिटिकल आई मीन शी एज अ पोलिटिकल पर्सन स्टार्ट राइट इन द बिगिनिंग आई थिंक शी वॉज बॉर्न बिकॉज ऑफ दैट शी वॉज बॉर्न टू फॉर वॉर आई मीन मेन यू से कम फ्रॉम द फायर फायर ऑफ वॉट फायर ऑफ वॉर बिकॉज इन दी एंड यू सी हर लाइफ हर लाइफ इज इट इज अ बैटल राइट फ्रॉम द टाइम शी इज बॉर्न सो यू मीन टू से शी इज टूली रिस्पॉन्सिबल फॉर द बैटल दैट I mean, she was married. I mean, why? Did, why? I mean, she was like, uh, she was almost like an afterthought. She came after her brother. She was, Drupad wanted her to marry an Arjun because he wanted her. She, he wanted her to use it against Dronacharya because the whole. You see her. Uh, she was destined to be into this because she was the entire pony politics. I mean, if you see whether it's a birth, whether it's a father, whether even a husband, and uh, Krishna and Draupadi, all of them get there's a vortex of politics. See, uh, when Draupadi comes, when actually the whole it becomes it's 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 actually a vortex because things happen so fast and things happen. It's very easy to blame her. वो उसने बोला सा अंधा इसलिए वो no. I think that thread of resentment is long way back. I mean, she just—I think that people just want to say that she is the reason why it happened. But okay, she doesn't mind that. She wants the war to happen because I think the only two people who wanted the war was she and Duryodhan. Because she wanted how it was not just—it was not just revenge. It is—it is her cry for justice. I mean, if you see the war, it was—if uh, it—if you say it happened because of her. But why the the her the this thing was if her five husbands are not ready for it she was ready she challenges them if I, if you are not ready for war I will use my five sons and my two brothers uh, and that is what she is prepared for so for her she wanted her war was her solution to her angst the whole she was she was on fire I mean when you say we are talking about younger Sini she is fire she is the personification of fire so Draupadi I think uh, she is political. Because she was pushed into it. I mean, her right from from her from the way she is born, from the way she lives her life. I mean, even as a daughter of a, as a Panchali, as a, the daughter of Drupad, she her swayamvar. If you see, it was she was destined to marry an Arjun. She was destined to have five husbands. Uh, again, now there again, I we see Kunti as a very political person. Kunti is another very political person, I would say, because uh, see the way she makes uh, be married him. So uh, because Kunti is again politically very uh, strong, because she was a queen, but she was an uncrowned queen. She never became a queen as such. Uh, because and that whole thing about she and Madhuri, she was though she was the first queen, Madhuri was the favorite queen. So Kunti's character again is very very uh, we never see we see her we often see her sort of again stereotyped as a mother of the Pandavas but her character if you again if you see it's a character with there's a lot of deprivation and lot of uh, she has been deprived of even of her political rights so she was just a queen in name she never became she could never flaunt herself as the queen of Hastinapur even when she comes when she is the uh, Queen Mother, like you say, the widow mother of the Pandavas. When she comes back, she is only there because of Bhishma. 
I think no one, no one really is really welcomes her back when, uh, when the Pandava when she comes back. Except for Bhishma and Satyavati and Satyavati immediately she leaves the scene. Uh, what is her existence? She is at the mercy of a Bhishma and a Vidur. So because of, I mean she what, she is a queen? Question mark. She is a queen mother? Question mark. So the, her entire ambition was to give what she was deprived of and the son should have it. So I think the same for the, with Draupadi, it's a different way. The, 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 Draupadi is almost pushed into all these events, whether she wants it or not. So it is her destiny. So I think uh, if Satyavati made the rules, she actually made all the rules, I think uh, Draupadi is the biggest victim of all the rules. So I think where I think that is where if you see the Mahabharata starts with Satyavati. I think before Satyavati, I think Devayani, they were the Devayani and uh, Sarmishta where politics actually started. So you see all these women, however small their roles, they all had a reason to be there. They all had, because they had a purpose, they had a reason and they saw to it, they were responsible to make the story move forward. Each of them, I mean if you see a Devayani, without the entire, uh, how Devayani, the entire triangle between Devayani, Yayati and Sarmishta again is very, very political. The children which they have, that entire dynasty again, which again we see, we see it during the time of Shantanu, that whole gap, where you see the women are as powerful as the men. So we, um, and we, the, I think the thing is we see mythology often through the eyes of the men. I think if you see it through the women's eyes, we actually see women and then you see all these people. You see a Gandhari. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think her blindfold is not a blindfold of devotion and duty. I think it's more of rage and resentment. You know, and how she reacts towards her own children. I think she was one of the reasons why the Kauravas were what they were. The, the entry of Shakuni into the scene. This is all political. That whole, I mean, it is it is so beautifully uh, and so insidiously weaved into it that each one have a, has a political purpose in the plot. So, I think, and women stand up. Women turned out to be actually Zitsi, Devyani, Sarmishta, Satyavati. I'm trying to see the chronology. Uh, Satyavati. So you must, uh, you, maybe in the future, books on them. Uh, Amba. Well. Amba is there. Of course, Amba is another very huge character. Amba, Ambalika, Ambika. Then you have Kunti, Gandhari, Madri. They are very short. And then Draupadi. I mean, Draupadi is one of the last. See all the women before her. <laughs> So, would you like to know how you manage family and work? How do you balance both? Now? Now? Now, now it's quite okay. Writing novels and then... <laughs> I think I should, I, should ask this, uh, I should ask my daughter to answer that. Uh, uh, what? I think I manage... Uh, my hmm. husband is a marina, so he is... Uh, most of the time he is not there. And uh, fortunately I have two daughters who... What? Who are, I mean, who never trouble? Actually, they never trouble me when I was writing. I mean, this whole thing about I would like to write, go to some different place and write. No, it was like, okay, my eye is writing. You know, usually they never stood there. They never bother to disturb me. So, and I had my time, like lunch time was with them, evening time is with them and the pets. And we have lots of dogs and cats. So, there were certain times I gave to them and certain times which they knew I could not, uh, they could not do. So, it was, I think they grew up with that. Uh, uh, 
because earlier I was in uh, media, which had very long hours, a uh, very erratic hours. So they were used to their mother not being there. So in a way, they were they were independent. And here, I think I would really like to mention. Uh, I had a help. I have a help, and I think my daughter calls her mama, and I'm the I. So I don't think my career would have ever happened without that particular lady. So I think I would. It's because of her my career was there. I think I would definitely say that. We would like to know more about, uh, like we would like to know about Menaka's choice <laughs> about your book. Okay, okay. Menaka's choice was again it was uh, there. I think that book. Your since uh, this is the topic, women and politics. We never see Apsara as in politics, <laughs> but I think Apsara was hugely uh, involved in the politics of Indra. If you see, they were the political weapons of Indra. Yeah. So the, the whole uh, thing was okay. Go seduce and uh, come back. That was the assignment. So when I came to know that Vishwamitra and Menka was a ten-year relationship, I said, okay, this is not what I thought it to be. And uh, I said, okay, let me just go back. And I did a lot of. There was another research account that uh, she had abandoned to not one daughter, two daughters. So who was this woman? Who was this mother? Who had to abandon two girls? At different stages of her life, who was this lady uh, who was of course beautiful, who was known for her bewitching beauty? Uh, who was this lady whom Indra used to send? Who was who was? Uh, they were. I mean, their names. I'm. I'm trying to stick to this particular topic. So, uh, Apsaras we never see them as political uh, people. We just see them as this. Uh, Beauties flying in and out of the scenes, and you know, in their act of seduction. But you see them. You see the story of each apsara. Each one had an assignment. Each one had a motive. Whether it was the rishi, whether it was the king, there were schemes. There were there were plots. There were weapons being used to systematically disarm the enemy. Now, if I mean this, this was my when when I wrote a main character. It was on that. And that entire there was there used to be a lot of politics even within the uh, apsara. You know, everyone wanted an assignment, so it was like so like someone said, "Oh, my!" It's almost like office politics. You know, it's like who wants gets what. But if you actually see each one, I mean each. Uh, I mean there was Urvashi, there is Menka, there is Ramba, there is Tilottama. Uh, I tried to weave in as much as many as possible, but. Each one's, if you see each one's history, whether it's uh, seducing uh, an asur, a king, a very powerful king, a powerful rishi, you see their character. They had only one purpose, that was to completely <coughs> disarm and destroy the enemy. So they were vehicles of destruction, actually. So, and uh, they were used very, very smartly by uh, Indra and the Dev. Because I think uh, they were, it was they were the people who actually were the other enemy sort of lost his guard. So, so I think that whole uh, the whole concept of apsaras I tried to see them as political weapons, and uh, that was why Menka's choice came about. And where she actually had a choice, I mean the, the way uh, it is again a very ironical title where. She ruined her own life by making a certain choice each time. Like she was meant to destroy a man, she fell in love with that man whom she was meant to destroy. And when she could have led a happy life with her daughter, 
that is the time where her guilt and where her conscience really hurt her and then she confessed to Vishwamitra and uh, things changed the other way and so uh, it was again a story of a woman who has choices but we always say a person has choices but I think where that whole thing of her determination and uh, destiny comes is what the decision which you make. So I think uh, that again dilemma was very was a sort of a text, subtext in the book. It was wonderful listening to Kavita Kanaji speak about uh, the women characters from Puranic history, from the epics and mythology. And uh, it uh, was a delight knowing about uh, her and her books and about Kavita Ji as a personality, as an uh, individual. I would now like to focus our shift, shift our focus to questions from the wonderful audience. Okay, I think uh, just the bike. <coughs> yes, I mean actually, since I'm writing about a minor character, sort of uh, marginal, more than minor, I would say marginalized character. Uh, there's a lot of fiction, of course. Now, this whole uh, act of balancing the fact, whatever facts I have, and fiction uh, is not only just delicate, it is uh, I have to be responsible because I try to keep as close to the original story uh, because uh, I would definitely not like to step into the religious domain. Uh, you're talking about Surpanaka. Uh, yes, now these are modern narratives. They are modern narratives like the feminist narrative, the anti-hero, uh, the Samaritan. I mean, Surpanaka, that's what, I mean, I did not want to show Surpanaka as a vamp, nor did I want to show her as a victim. The whole, I tried to clarify it uh, before also. So, this perspective uh, are extremely uh, individual. Uh, if you're asking about me, how uh, I try to, I mean, uh, I mean uh, Surpanaka was controversial, again, Minka was controversial. Uh, when I, my, basically, my characters are based on the bigger characters. Now, if it was Surpanaka, my characters, Surpanaka was, beside that particular incident, two incidents, there was nothing about her. So, she is, she is, I derived her from Ravan's, as a Ravan sister as Kumbhakarna's sister and tried to, she, she was as a sister of these three brothers and the daughter of Vishwamitra, of And uh, if she had these, uh, whatever came out of the, her life story, uh, when the Surpanaka, I think as I said before, they said, she is demonic. And I would just try to humanize her, but a humanizer, when you say humanize her, I mean, you have to see her flaws also. I am not trying to paint her white, so I don't know. I, fortunately, I did not read that review, but whatever that review was, I did not want her to show. If I don't want her to show her as a victim, I don't want her to show her as a winner either. She doesn't win. How does she win? And how does she become a victim? It is the story of a person who, with her flaws, with her faults, with her follies, and she 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 tries to give, uh, give it back to, but it all comes back on her. So that itself is. Uh, redemption in one way. 
so and here i'm not sitting here to judge i'm really not interested in judging a character and making a black white or here it is about i just like the readers to think i think that is very important where to think contemplate read the story because in the end it's the story of this particular person of a sudhapadaka or a satyavati or so when i'm telling that story because it's not my story so i am already taking it from so i try to retain the original as much as i can and try to create a character who is very believable i think and the most difficult i think was umila that because there is absolutely absolutely nothing about her and uh, the fact that she was so very accepted i think uh, i'm happy i'm happy because i loved her personally and i'm happy that the readers also loved her so i think suprana uh, uh, was scared but no main ka was scared and satyavati again i was scared so okay after three tests they were like see it was easier writing about an urvi or umila because they were traditionally good characters the shades of black grays come in menka there is a lot of see they, the story starts getting darker so uh, it becomes more difficult uh, so again here i am not trying to be making the character like the or vinna no i it's, it is in the end about empowerment in the sense they are women not uh, who never who, who fight back i think it is not a someone i remember some review again saying oh in the end within the framework they do uh, accept defeat yes of course life is not fair it is we are going to be defeated but how you are defeated is also very important and how you fight back because life again is a battle and i think this is each woman ha- i think if you see this uh, the story i mean any woman uh, in the epics uh, if you see their story is a battle their own personal battle and how they fight it i think that's what i am uh, that's the story i am just trying to tell First of all, great congratulations on what I have heard and how you have depicted the characters. It is very interesting and it is powerful. I congratulate you on departing from this most stupid fashion of looking upon women of the epics as victims. I am very happy to see that you are entirely out of the discourse which is being taken up by Wendy Doniger and their disciples in Jawaharlal Nehru University and Delhi University. And so I am sure that your work will make a mark in the writing of uh, not just characters or history, but of viewing women as warriors now if you are a great warrior and a good warrior it does not matter whether you win or lose because karana is a great warrior so if it applies to men then the same should happen yes of course to them and therefore these women some of them may have lost some of them may have won like dropdi won in the end probably is a winner so that's one thing now i have many things to say one or two specific questions like uh, did uh, the father of santivati really extract no he of course extracted a promise but did the father of kekai extract a promise from 
We use the word politics, I want power for the sake of power. Whereas these women are not pursuing power for the sake of power. They are entirely pursuing it out of a dharmic conviction. What we today may call rights. Because it is something which they deserve to get. Each of them. Mm -hmm. And therefore they pursue it. Not just because they want power. They, they want power in order to fulfill a certain end which is absolutely justified. And it is on that justification that the whole structure, the dharmic structure of the epic is against. That's why I would say it is the power, shakti. Of yes, the of course, definitely. I completely agree on this because it, that's what I mean. Uh, the whole part of mythology, if you see, uh, if, I mean, I'm talking about women and mythology, uh, is this layered identity. It started, it has uh, conducted over a hundred events uh, across the country and abroad. And it has several chapters across the country. I would request you to please join uh, in the Academy on Facebook and Twitter to stay updated with uh, our past, ongoing and upcoming events. And last of all, I would like to thank you all for taking out time from your busy schedule to be here at this event. I hope and to look forward to meeting you again in our future Indic Academy events. Thank you once again. Namaste. Thank you once again. Thank you very much. And it was a very good evening. I hope it was a very good evening for you too. Namaste.